you would, go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to Psalm chapter 27. That's where we're going to be tonight, and we're going to get there uh, in just a few minutes. But before we do, I, I want to kind of ask the question um, that, that comes to my mind really when you approach almost any psalm. Uh, psalms are in the Bible. We're familiar with the Bible. We read it. We know it. We know it's God's Word. Um, but sometimes we struggle when it comes to the relevance of the Bible to our lives. Um, we know the Bible's good. We know that it's true. But at the same time, there's certain parts of the Bible, again, that just sometimes to us as we read it, we go, well, what does that have to do with me? Is that relevant to my life uh, and what I experience day to day is I live trying to serve God. Um, when I think about that, and I think about the Psalms in their context, there's a few things that we can kind of do to put them in their place and then make a judgment about whether or not that they are relevant to us today. Um, obviously, we want to note the covenantal context of the Psalms in the Old Testament. And by that, I mean the Psalms are a part of the Old Testament. That's where we find them. And we know that the Psalms were used in the temple, um, even perhaps in the tabernacle to an extent, and that some of the language in the Psalms is specifically tied to what I would call pre-Christ systems of worship, right? We're talking about the sacrificial system. We're talking about the way things were done in the, the synagogues and the tabernacles and the temples. Uh, synagogue, not really, more the tabernacle and the temple, I should say. The, the things that were done in there, we know we no longer do those things in the exact same way. And so some of the Psalms use language that would be outdated. But we should note that the Psalms aren't irrelevant or obsolete just because that they're included in the Old Testament. We know that Psalms is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and that really the theology of the apostles' gospel sermons were built on passages like Psalm uh, 110, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So we know that you know, the Psalms were very important to the preaching of the early church. But once we understand that, we understand, well, there's the old covenant context and the new covenant context. We know that there's also a historical context to the Psalms. In other words, these Psalms reflect events and happenings in history, in the life of Israel and Judah, and the Psalms reflect the feelings and the struggles of the people who lived during those times. The Psalms also have a personal context, because we know that the Psalms were written by men, by various authors. We can see in the superscripts above the Psalms, and if you look in, in the book of Psalms, you'll see usually above it, it'll say a Psalm of David, or a Maskell of David, or of the sons of Asaph, or this is what David was doing. Uh, you should know from, from all that we understand, those are not inspired, okay? Th that's something that was added later in history, but tradition holds up very strongly that those are accurate. In other words, about as old as we have copies of the Psalms, these have always been attached to them. And they give us a little bit of context about events that would have been tied, let's say, from the author to the writing of the Psalm that we can see reflected in that. For David, for instance, there's a lot of events in David's life that are tied to specific psalms, and some of those are positive. Psalm 18 talks about when David was delivered from all his enemies by the Lord and had peace. And then there's also many negative cases of psalms being tied to David's life events. When he's fleeing from Absalom for his life, uh, when Nathan the prophet comes to him after he committed the sin with Bathsheba, when he's hiding from Saul in the caves around uh, Israel and people are trying to uh, you know, suss him out and give him back to Saul. So we see that 
the, the Psalms have a, again, a covenantal context, a historical context. They have a personal context. But not only that, the personal goes beyond just events in people's lives because when we look at the Psalms, we really can see the innermost thoughts of the psalmist's hearts. And I say psalmists because it's more than just David. We see the hearts of these people who are writing the Psalms, and we see how they felt in regards to feelings of joy, feelings of faithfulness, feelings of suffering, and even questioning God, and their love for God. We, we see this laid out for us in the pages of the Psalms, and so that would be the, the personal, authorial context of the Psalms. But there's one more context that we need to consider and again, this is maybe the most important when it comes to the psalm's relevance for us. And that is understanding the psalms as scripture, right? These are scripture. Now, when you really look at the Bible, sometimes it's amazing what is scripture. Now, some books of the Bible, like let's say Genesis or Joshua, that are records of things that happened. What kind of book would we call that? Somebody said it? History, right? History. That's a history book. That's a book of events that happen and recorded, just like you would read a history book today, except the books in the Bible are inspired and perfect, and the history books today are far from it. Well, what other kinds of books do we have? In the New Testament, the vast majority of all the books are what? Letters. They're letters, right? Letters written in pen with a hand to somebody else, right? Well, that letter is scripture, and that's interesting to some people. Well, how can a letter be scripture? Well, again, we come to the, back to the Old Testament and we see various different kinds of books. But the fact that the Psalms are poetry and beyond that they're songs, that's interesting to some people. Well, how can a song be the word of God? How can a song be scripture? But if we believe the Psalms are supposed to be in the Bible as we do, then the context of Psalms as scripture mean that they are supposed to instruct us, right? It's not just a record of what David felt or what Solomon felt or what Moses felt or a thing that happened to Israel or Judah. They are meant to instruct us in something. And that's on an individual level and even on a congregational level. Because again, if we're talking about the people of God, and we were talking about that in an Old Testament sense, we could talk about the tribes or Israel or Judah, but today we are the people of God. And so if the Psalms have some kind of message or teaching for the people of God, that applies to all of us collectively, and we need to look at it in that sense. Now, when you think about this, it's important to note again, if the Psalms are scripture, it means that every Psalm we have here, we have for a reason. Now, let me open that up a little bit and explain what I mean. The Psalms that God inspired that are in your Bible are ones that were inspired and collected for our benefit that were specifically chosen for that purpose. We know this because the 150 psalms that we have in our Bible do not include every song written by the authors that appear in the book. For example, how many psalms are ascribed to Solomon in the book of Psalms? If anybody just wants to guess, it's okay to be wrong. 3,000. 3, you're, you're skipping ahead. You're skipping to how many he wrote, right? We know he wrote thousands of songs. How many of them do we have in the book of Psalms? Two. That's right. That's two. We have two psalms of Solomon in the book of Psalms. You go, man, he only wrote two good ones, and I guess you, you have to write 3,000 to learn how to write two good ones. No, I'm sure Solomon had all kinds of good psalms that he wrote. But if you look at 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 32, 
which I think I gave to you, Kevin. I hope I did. Maybe I didn't. But if you look at 1 Kings 4.32, it says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005, right? This man was prolific. Solomon lived in a time of peace. He could literally spend a lot of time just writing stuff down, right? But again, we don't have represented in the Bible all necessarily all 3,000 Proverbs or all 1,005 Psalms, right, that Solomon wrote. Is that a bad thing? Is that scary? Or do we have exactly what we're supposed to have? We have exactly what we're supposed to have, right? Because we know that God told us in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he said that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what we have in the Psalms is what we need. But I want you to realize that these have been specifically inspired and chosen for us. These are the inspired Psalms. Now, again, is it possible that God inspired other songs? Yes, but if he did, we didn't need to have them. They weren't for our benefit in that way. So we know that Solomon wrote more than just the two Psalms that we have from him in the book of Psalms. I would go as far as to guess that David wrote more than 75 psalms because we know we have attribution that 75 of the psalms of the 150 are from David. I believe he probably wrote more than that, but we have these specific psalms that God has given us. But this point goes both ways because, again, just because we have all these other psalms out there, we didn't get those. Those are the ones we weren't supposed to have. But since God did give us these psalms, then they are written specifically and given specifically for our betterment, okay? I want you to follow that point because just because David wrote a psalm doesn't mean that we need to have it. Just because Solomon wrote a psalm doesn't mean that we have to have it and it's profitable for us today. But the ones that we have are profitable because God has preserved them and given them to us. Now, this is important to remember because, again, at times the psalms, we have to question, are they relevant, right? Are they, are they really meant for us? Are they, is there, are they teaching us something about our lives and the way that the world works today? Because if they don't, then we can reject them, right? But if they are relevant, if they are relevant to the things that we experience, then it's very important for us to read them as Scripture, right? Not just as historical events, not just as informing us about the way that David felt, but how we should feel, how we should strive to follow God. And so if we do that, if we really look at Psalms in that way, the Psalms can really inform us of things that we don't see with our own eyes. And what I mean by that is the Psalms show us realities and blessings and dangers and challenges that we really can't perceive with our senses. Now, that, that goes against kind of everything that we understand because we say, well, if something exists, if something is happening, then I should be able to sense it and kind of quantify that. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. We believe what this book says even when we can't sense it, even when we can't see those things. It doesn't mean they're not real. In fact, some of the most real things are things that we can't sense and see. And so if we turn to the Psalms, it can grant us perspective and even hope that we wouldn't have otherwise apart from the songs that God has given us. For those who weren't able to join us at the fall retreat last weekend, uh, I hate that you didn't because you, you weren't able to because it was a great time. Uh, and I was blessed to have a little block of time on Saturday to put on a psalms singing class. And you may have never heard of that before, but we, we took just a little while to sing the psalms. We read them and we talked about them, and then we would sing through them with tunes from other songs that we're familiar with. Now, we do this in our worship service as well because uh, we sing songs that are either taken almost directly from or heavily inspired by the 
the direct words of the Psalms. Uh, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah is Psalm 148. And as the deer comes from a quotation in Psalm 42, that's just two and there's, there's a lot more than that. But what is amazing about singing material from the Psalms is that just as the New Testament teaches us and tells us that we're supposed to do what when we sing to one another? Teaching. We're teaching one another, right? And admonishing one another through that. Well, when we sing the Psalms, when we're singing the words of God, we're actually teaching ourselves as we sing it, right? Because these words are coming out of your mouth, you're saying them, and yet they may be teaching you, this is how I ought to feel. Sometimes when you look at the Psalms and if you were to sing them, you go, I don't know if I really feel that way. I don't know if I can say that, you know, in my heart, I truly believe that. As you sing it, it's teaching you that this is how God wants it. This is the way that we're supposed to feel. This is the way that we can learn truth from God's word, even truth that we don't know before we learn it in song. Now, again, this creates a challenge as we do this, if we were to recite the Psalms or sing them, because it makes us question whether or not we truly believe the words that the psalmist writes. Do we really believe what it says in here? Words about you know, loving God and the love God has for us. Words about the faithfulness of God, about the judgment and the wrath of God and the destruction that he's going to bring. You know, Psalms about winning battles and having glory and, and, and Psalms that teach us that we can be victorious. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that God can do those things for us? It, it kind of is a challenge when you really put them to your heart and do the test and say, do I think that this is true? Well, with all these things in mind, when we think about context, I, I wanted to kind of bring that forward about relevance when it comes to Psalm chapter 27. Because again, Psalm 27 is one that if you read it, it can feel so tied to the context of David and of the time itself that we go, well, is this even relevant to us today? Maybe this is just something that's Old Testament. Maybe it's just something that applied to David. But I truly believe that we can take the words of this psalm and the truth of it and apply it to our lives and see that, yes, it's still relevant, it's still helpful, and it still gives us hope as we look at it today. So let's start in Psalm chapter 27. Let's just read through the entirety of the chapter here, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy upon, also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. 
Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your hearts. Wait, I say, on the Lord. When you look at the entirety of Psalm chapter 27, it is a psalm that deals heavily with enemies, evildoers, and trouble. Right? David says, I have all of this trouble around me. I have people that are encroaching on me. I have enemies encamping against me. And David, as the king of Israel, he, he was king during a highly fraught period in Israel's history. He was a man of war. He constantly had to go to war and fight people, and he won. He won these battles, but at the same time, he was very acquainted with having enemies. He was harassed by nations like the Philistines and other surrounding nations. He was attacked by his own kinsmen at times, his own uh, fellow members of Israel. He was betrayed by his father-in-law and his son at various points. Over and over, David had problems of conflict in his life. But it's worth noting that the first statement of the psalm, if we'll go back to the first three verses there, that the first statement of the psalm is not about enemies. Enemies are involved, but it's not about enemies. In other words, the the problem is not the first thing that's noted, but the solution. The very first part of the psalm is the solution to all the problems that we see therein. And it says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It is fascinating to me that if you looked at this psalm, it actually starts and ends in a similar fashion because the psalm begins with a repetition twice using the covenant name of God. That's the capital L-O-R-D that you see on the screen, right? Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the covenant name of God that Israel used to refer to him. So it begins with twice using that and it ends at the end of the psalm with using that twice. Wait for the Lord. I say, wait for Jehovah. It's basically basically a sandwich, right? A sandwich of this psalm that is sandwiched between the reality of Romans chapter 8 verse 31, which says, if God is with us, what? Who can be against us, right? That's the reality that begins the psalm and ends the psalm. And there's always a nice simplicity when we have the answer before we ever dig in. (laughs) The answer from the very beginning is, if God is for us, who can be against us? David is not saying that enemies do not exist, He's not saying that enemies don't want to hurt him, but he's saying because of God, the enemies are just irrelevant in the grandest sense of the word. It doesn't matter because if God is my light and my salvation and my stronghold, who can really hurt me? No one can. No one can really do me harm. Now look at verses two and three. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Now, the reason that David knows that God is sufficient for his victory is from past experience. David had already experienced the fact that God is sufficient to take care of his enemies and bring him through safely. He had been in situations that should have ended in his slaughter. David, sometimes you talk to people, and especially uh, some of the the folks around here who have lived a little dangerously, and you hear them talking, man, you should have been dead five or six times by now, right? David is a man that should have been dead many more times than that. He was in plenty of situations where he was no better than a dead man, and yet he came out the other side, usually sometimes as the last man standing. Now, of course, we can think of examples of this. What's maybe the best example of David coming up against unbeatable odds? David and Goliath, right? That's the most obvious one that we can think of. But David knew that the God that allowed him to beat a giant, 
The God that allowed him to defeat a lion or a bear was a God that was infinitely capable of delivering him from armies of what? Thousands, hundred thousands, a million. How many can you send that God can't defeat? David said, he's been with me in the past. And because of that, I know that he will be with me in the future. If, I, if he's won for me in the past, he will be my victory forevermore. I think this is really important for us today. And I mean today is in our current context because sometimes we have a disconnect with the language of the Psalms when it comes to enemies and armies and battles and all these things that we don't experience because by the grace of God, we don't find ourselves on a day-to-day basis in this country in active combat, right? Um, there are people in this room that can talk to you about active combat and tell you all about that and, and thank God for those people that have experienced that. And we don't know what the future holds, but we know that we are blessed in this country today that we don't have to experience armies and battles in our day-to-day life as we go about it. But because we're out of that context and we're in the current kind of peacetime that we've been in, on that front, I think we can fall into two errors, really, based on two different types of conflict that we Face because we do have enemies. We do have conflict that we can see in our lives. So here's the two kind of sides of the error that I think we fall into. First is about our human enemies. Now, there is no denying that when David talks about enemies in Psalm chapter 27, the language he uses, what kind of enemy is he talking about? It's a human enemy, right? It's, a, it's an army of humans or a person that wants to kill him, right? We, we know David had different points, again, where his son wanted to kill him, his, Saul wanted to kill him, his advisor betrayed him. All of these things were humans, were the enemies of David. But today, when it comes to our Christian life, I think, again, we fall into one of two things. One, we're either guilty of believing that we have no human enemies in Christ, or on the other side, we misdiagnose who our enemies are really are, right? We misidentify them of who our enemies are. Why would a person think that a Christian has no human enemies? Uh, I think there's a couple passages that people draw from for this, and I understand kind of the logic that they would have. There's, I'll, I'll just use this because Ronald's not here, and if he's watching it, it may make him smile. Ronald has a favorite band that he listens to, and I think I'm allowed to say this. They have some really good songs. I like them too, called the Avett Brothers, and you may have never heard of the Avett Brothers in your life. And they have a song, and one of the refrains of that song says, essentially over and over again, I have no enemies, right? I have no enemies. And what the person's saying, I'm at peace with the world. I'm at peace kind of with God. Uh, And because of that, I don't have a problem with anybody. No person is my enemy. And when you look at the Bible, there's, again, there's things that kind of maybe would point you in that direction. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says the Christian's battle is not a battle of flesh, but a spiritual battle. Okay, that's what Paul says. We can all agree that Paul says there's a a sense in which our battle is spiritual. But because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, as Paul puts it there, some people go as far as to say that any kind of conflict that Christians have is exclusively of a spiritual nature. It's just against the spiritual that no human can truly be our enemy under the covenant of Christ. But we know that that cannot be the truth of this passage because the same writer, Paul, if you looked over in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, 
He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Is Paul talking about angels and demons and principalities here? No, he's talking about what? People, humans, right? These are humans that are enemies of the cross of Christ. So there are human enemies of Jesus and the church in the world that we live today. And they're people. They're people that we can see around us. Now, again, Jesus said something in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, that shows us that as a Christian, we think differently about our enemies, right? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Is that true? Yes, absolutely it's true. But because it's true, it tells us this. Does Jesus say you have no enemies? No. Jesus says what? You absolutely have enemies. He promises you that you're going to have enemies. In fact, he promises apostles, if you are like me, what will the world do? They'll hate you. You're always going to have enemies. So yes, we have to treat them differently. We don't try to go out with swords and kill them. But we must acknowledge the fact that enemies are real. We have enemies around us as Christians today. And again, sometimes the way that we think about that is our downfall because we think that we don't. We think that mostly everyone's okay. No one's really going to try to hurt us. No one's going to come against us. But even when we do think we have enemies, we often look at a much closer level and, again, kind of misidentify who is our enemy because a lot of days the enemy is the person who cuts us off in traffic, right? Or the person who's slow checking out their groceries at the self-checkout uh, in front of us. That's the kind of enemy. Oh, my goodness, they're just holding up my day. Or, or maybe it's somebody that just inconveniences us, someone who just kind of makes us upset in a small way. That's who we think of as our enemies. But, again, there are those out there, human people, that want nothing more than the total disillusion of Christianity and want to make themselves enemies of anybody who would hold to the morality of the Bible. There are people like that out there. And in a world increasingly hostile to the cross and God in general, we can find ourselves in a situation not unlike that of David. We have enemies. They're all around us. They want our downfall. And on the other side, even though Paul said that our warfare is of a spiritual nature, we're really often guilty of downplaying and forgetting that there is a spiritual struggle that plays out in our day-to-day -day life. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 in the model prayer. He said, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That prayer is really helpful to me because in my day-to-day -day life, it's really easy to focus on myself and kind of what I'm doing, my pitfalls. And sometimes I even have an easy time focusing on God, right? Well, God wants me to do this or that. But sometimes I forget that there is another force, there is a spiritual battle that wants my downfall, that wants me to fail. And again, if you look at a, a passage uh, like 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, where he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's in our context. And a lot of times we're guilty of thinking the devil is just a, a little tiny pebble in the road that is going to try to trip us up. Maybe he'll kind of jump out. No, he's on the active prowl. He wants us to fall. And oftentimes we think of our enemies 
ways we're, we're guilty of maybe not praying prayers like that. Father, deliver me from the evil one. Right? Deliver me from temptation because there are forces out there, Satan, that want my downfall. Now, I say this, believe it or not, I'm not trying to discourage you or make you despondent about the state of the world, but I just want you to realize that you are not that far removed from the kinds of positions that David found himself in, in Psalm chapter 27, that there are those who want our downfall, there are those that are enemies, and those that want to tempt us into leaving the God that we love, but we are not without hope. That's the message of the psalm. We're not without hope. What, what does David say? Where do we look for help? Look at verse 4 of Psalm chapter 27. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and now in my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord." We see that with all of the strife around him and all of the enemies, that David's focus, his, his goal always in the midst of this, is that he will always dwell in the presence of God and to be a member of God's household. We know that in David's day, the house of God would have been thought of as the tabernacle, right? This is where they would have done their sacrifices and worshiped. But we don't necessarily tie the idea of protection to the house of God the way that David does in verse 5, right? David not only says, I'm going to, I want to go to your house, I want to worship you, but he says, in the time of trouble, God will hide me in his tabernacle. I think that's really interesting, right? That the house of worship is kind of this protection place for David. But it's not the first time that David has made the connection between dwelling in God's house and being protected from enemies. Because look in Psalm 23. We're all very familiar with this psalm, Psalm 23 and verse 5. The first statement is in the context that brings us this last statement. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Sometimes we gloss over that, but David's saying, God, you make a meal for me and sit me down to eat and take care of me when an army is surrounding me. Right? There's trouble all around, and yet you've offered me protection. And at the end, what does he say? And I, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Only in God's house can we sit in peace when the world is, is on fire around us. That's what David says. He says, God, you'll protect me in your tabernacle. You'll offer me a stronghold that I will be safe even during times of trouble. And just the same way today, the church of Jesus Christ offers us protection. It offers us peace, right? In a world that is falling apart, God protects us in the stronghold of his church. And in that church, we can offer sacrifice, we can worship, we can sing to God and know that our enemies can't hurt us. In fact, they can even kill us, but they really can't hurt us. And just as worship and knowing God acts as our salvation from all that could threaten us in the world, we have to remember God is saving us through that worship and knowing him so that once we come out the other side, we can know him even better and we can worship him even more. So God truly saves us through worship and he saves us to worship, right? It's amazing how God works through us and again and for us through what he's given us. 
And yet sometimes, again, we look down on worship as boring. Well, I have to go to church. God is offering you a lifeline in the world. He's offering you protection. And that's what David sees in the tabernacle of his day. Uh, let's go on to verse 7. It says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me, and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. David has all the confidence in the world that God will save him. He knows that God will save him. He saved him before. He's going to save him again. And yet, what is it still important for David to do? Serve him. Serve him right? And then second, he has to do what to God? What does he He's asking him. He says, God, save me, praying to him. He knows God will save him, and yet he doesn't say, well, I know God will save me, so I don't have to pray about it. I don't have to say anything more about it. No, God says, or David says, God, please save me. I love the call and response. He says, God, you said, seek my face, and David said, what? I'll do it. I'm going to do it. And again, a lot of times we're I call it kind of a faux humility. We're so afraid to say, yeah, I am serving God. Yeah, I'm trying to seek God. A lot of times we say, well, I'm doing my best. It's not really much. I, I can barely even qualify to be called a Christian. It's great to be humble, but it's okay to say, God said, serve me. And I said, I'll do it to the best of my ability, flawed as I am, uh, fallible as I am, I am trying to serve God. And because of that, David says, God, I said, I will serve you. So you be faithful to your word. Be faithful to what you said you would do. Protect me. Look after me. Uh, continue to be faithful. In fact, David goes as far as to say, when his father and mother forsake him, God is faithful. Now, does that mean, do we have any record of Jesse forsaking David? No, it doesn't happen in the Bible. He's drawing a comparison, right? He's saying, as much as my father and mother have provided for me and cared for me, God has done infinitely more for my protection and for my well-being. But God, David knows that he needs God for more than just protection, right? More than just a, a beat stick to get rid of his enemies. Look in verse 11. Verse 11 of Psalm chapter 27. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. David sees his enemies. He sees God's protection. But he also knows that he needs God to direct his path. Right? It's not just that God's going to beat his enemies and that God's going to kind of put a shield around him. David says, no, I need you to tell me where to go. And the way that I should go. Because only in that way am I going to come out on the other side of the conflict. And this is important for us because it shows us that God's word is not just instructive. Because it is. God's word is instructive. But it's also protective. Okay? God's word is protective. God has given us a way of living in his word that is for our good. It's so funny when you're a teenager, when you're young, and you're coming up and you... you look at the Bible and you go to Bible classes, it just feels like God doesn't want you to do what? Have fun. God just does not want me to have fun. Everybody else is having a good time and going out and being wild, and I have to be boring and, and a good Christian and not ever have any fun. Once you've lived the Christian life, you can say with all your heart, there is no better way to live. There's no better way to live. God gives us these commandments. And I think about what he said, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And it's done so that it may be well with us and that you may what? Live long in the land, right? Live long on the earth. 
God's word is, is instructed in such a way that if we live it, we can live well and it can protect us. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be persecuted for following it. In fact, the opposite, Jesus says, we will be persecuted. But it means that God will protect us through his commandments on this side of the trouble and he will save us on the other side of it. If we fall into trouble, there's really no way for us to lose. So with that in mind, let's look at the very end of the psalm because I think it's in the next to last verse of this chapter that David makes his boldest claim. He says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David was a person that was very familiar with the spiritual aspect of life. David was a very spiritual man. I think about when David's child with Bathsheba became ill, and David fasted, he wept, he was crying out to God, and then once the baby died, we know that he got up, he, he washed up, and went and sat down at table, and they asked him, they said, David, why are you doing this? Why have you had this reaction? And what did he say? I can go to him, he can't come to me. Did David understand the spiritual aspect of that? Yes, he did. Uh, Peter, when he preached in Acts chapter 2, he said, David was a prophet, and he foresaw the resurrection of Jesus. David had the hope of the resurrection while he was on the earth, right? He understood that a, a seed of his would be raised up from the dead and that God would save everyone through him. I say that to say David understood spiritual salvation, but David's confidence went beyond, or really should I say, it came before a belief that God would vindicate him just spiritually. Because David says, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now this is difficult, because in our context in our world, we get defeated, we get downtrodden, and we say, well, God will make it all right in eternity, right? God's just going to fix it in the end, until then everything's going downhill right it's all going south nothing good could ever happen that defeatist attitude is not true right because as long as we have a pulse and as long as there's a beating heart in people's chest god has the ability and the power to change things for good god can deliver us in this life now again we, we are reminded of, and for Ronald, again, not being here, I'll throw a, a shout out to his favorite three guys, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God can save us, and even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship, right? We're not going to be saved from every fiery furnace, but we know that at the end, even at the end, even after we die, we will see vindication in the land of the living. Go, go quickly to Job chapter 19. I always think of Job's words where he said, no matter what happens to me, no matter how bad it gets, Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold not another. How my heart yearns within me. No matter what happens to you, on the last day you will rise up out of that grave and you will stand vindicated before God on the ground, as you, as you see, you rise up from the grave again. It's hard to even fathom that. But at the end, you will be among the living. You will be vindicated. And if you are in Christ, you will live forever. You will never be outside of the protection of God. So as we close up, what is the application of this psalm? And we see it there in the last verse. David gives it for all who hear the psalm and all who would sing it after him, even to today. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. We don't always see salvation. Sometimes we're staring down the furnace, and it's getting hot, and we say, I don't see where salvation's coming. But God will save us. He will. 
It's already a foregone conclusion. Salvation is in our future. Heaven will be our home. He's a good God. And because of that, we wait and we wait with heart and we wait with courage. And we're not afraid because we know that God's on our side. Thank you all very much.